0: Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto and I am joined today by Fahad Razak, a staff internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and a Bell Fellow at The Population and Development Center at Harvard. What is that? Is that wrong? I say that wrong every time, don't Every
1: time. All right. The Harvard Center for
0: Population and Development Studies. Either way, whatever. Sure, I didn't get your pompous title right. Okay, Fahad. So, uh, pleasure to do this with you. This is our last episode of the year. Uh, Makes me a bit sad. Just a bit sad. A lot of sad.
1: (laughs) Mega sad. Okay. Um, Great to be with you today,
0: yeah, it's good to have you too. So, So this is our last episode for the season, and then we're going to take some time off for the summer, and we will be back to you with brand new, revitalized content uh, later on in the year. Sounds exciting. Okay, so today Fahad and I are going to talk about two articles. Fahad is going to talk about dabigatran reversal, and I'm going to talk about the association between digoxin use and mortality. As always, we will wrap up the episode with our Good Stuff segment. So Fahad, why don't you kick us off and tell me about reversing dabigatran?
1: Okay, thanks, Amal. So I'm going to talk about a trial that was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine that tested adiracizumab, I'm probably not going to say that too many times, as a dabigatran reversal agent. So as you know, direct oral anticoagulants are rising in popularity for treatment of conditions such as DVT, PE, or atrial fibrillation, and this study provides the first direct reversal agent, in
0: this case for dabigatran, and shows it to be quite effective. Okay, so this is the magic pill, I guess, if you if you will, the thing that we've been the holy grail of direct oral anticoagulants, except isn't this for the wrong drug? Does anyone even use dabigatran anymore? We'll get to that intriguing question shortly, and we'll also acknowledge right now that it's not a pill. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> so, Fahad, tell me Uh, why did they do this study and how did they do this study? Okay, so
1: just to start with a quick background on the direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, Um, we now have four that are commonly used. Dibigatran inhibits thrombin, whereas the other three that we use, apixaban, adoxaban, and rivaroxaban, inhibit factor 10a. And we have a lot of trials now to suggest that DOACs are either non-inferior or potentially superior to warfarin both for treating clots or to prevent them. Uh, They've also been shown in multiple studies to have reduced rates of major bleeding and intracranial and fatal hemorrhage. But the use of these agents may be limited by the fact that there's no specific antidote for them, and that's worrying, especially when you have a patient with uh, a critical bleeding event. Now they have tried non-specific reversal agents to try and combat bleeding in these patients, things like prothrom- prothrombin complex concentrates or recombinant factor 7A. And there is a lot of science, as you can imagine, to try and develop specific reversal agents. So in development right now are things like re- recombinant factor 10A, which will bind to all of those agents that work on, uh, that work as 10A inhibitors. And there's a new drug called PER-977 that may work on a bunch of the DOACs through a non-specific effect, but a targeted effect via electrostatic interactions. Um, This paper that I'm going to talk about today is the first that has now directly tested one of these agents. The drug is called idaracizumab, and it's a monoclonal antibody targeted directly at dabigatran.
0: So how does that work? So it mops up dabigatran by targeting it? Yeah. It
1: mops up dabigatran. It binds it and takes it out of circulation. And what's interesting is it even seems to pull
0: some of the dabigatran that's out of the vascular space into the vascular space and binds it as well. Hmm. Okay. And so uh, tell me about this study. This was a phase one trial? So this is actually not a trial. It's an observational study. And it's the
1: interim reporting of a study that's supposed to look at 300 patients in 38 countries. And it's reporting the results in the first 90 patients. And they looked at two groups, those who came in with a critical bleed who required immediate reversal of dabigatran, and those who were on dabigatran but required some kind of urgent surgery or procedure where you would have to quickly reverse the activity of dabigatran.
0: Okay. And so uh, how did they select
1: these patients? So as I said, the study was done across 38 countries, and basically they uh, had investigators recruiting patients who came in with one of those two questions. So someone who required immediate reversal either because they were bleeding or because they required an urgent procedure. And the primary outcome they looked at was the ability of this drug to normalize the anticoagulation profile. And for Dibigatran specifically, what they look at is they look at two measures. One is called the dilute thrombin time, and the second is called the escarin clotting time. A secondary outcome that they, looked at and that they looked at in this trial was whether the physician reported restoration of hemostasis. Okay. And so uh, what did they find? Well, they found that this drug was remarkably effective. So there was complete normalization of bleeding time in between 88 to 98% of patients. That's depending on whether they looked at the dilute thrombin time or the escarin time. And that effect occurred within minutes of administration Um, Of the 36 patients, so of these 90 patients, 36 were in the group that were requiring emergency surgery. The surgeons intraoperatively reported normal hemostasis in 92% of those patients.
0: Wow, that's
1: pretty remarkable. Yeah, pretty effective. The other interesting finding that they had, now this is unrelated to the way the drug uh, occurs, is that because they had these direct measures of dabigatran effect, they found about a quarter of patients who reported being on dabigatran actually weren't taking to
0: Bigotran. So their hemostasis parameters suggest that they were actually not on any drug at all. Or at least maybe not in the most proximal time period, so in the last two days or something before presenting to hospital. Sure. Yeah, that's right. But it but as you said, it's actually not that they missed
1: one dose or two doses. They would have been have to be completely off to Bigotran for multiple days.
0: Interesting. And so any side effects of this medication?
1: Yeah, so um, they only found, and and again, this is an interim analysis, so definitely doesn't tell you about long-term safety, and it wasn't powered to look at big, important events like clotting, but of the patients, they only found a single patient of these 90 who had a clotting event, and that occurred 72 hours after taking the drug, and that patient was not restarted on anticoagulation, so they may have had a clot because they were high clotting risk and now weren't on any anticoagulant at all. The other interesting thing is that, as I mentioned, a quarter of the patients who should be on dabigatran were found actually not to be on dabigatran. But that was only found afterwards, once the blood was analyzed at a central lab. So all of those patients still received aderocizumab. So you're giving them this reversal agent, which potentially could increase clotting. They weren't even on dabigatran, and yet none of them had a clot. So that's Reassuring.
0: Yeah, I guess just sort of thinking mechanistically, that's probably more likely in this mechanism of reversal agent where it's debigatrans specific. I wonder what the implication for that is for other reversal-type agents that you mentioned, like this electrostatic magic that you've been talking about. That's right. Uh, and presumably that you know might be a bigger problem in that context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But it points to potentially why this is such an effective mechanism or promising mechanism of developing a drug. So it seems very specific to the drug in this case, not the action of the DOAC.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so did they talk at all about patient outcomes,
1: like clinical outcomes? Uh, this this study unfortunately was again not powered to look at that. These were patients who had critical events. We're talking about things like intracranial bleeding, and so even if you have reversal of the uh, bleeding abnormality through use of this medication, these patients already are very very sick. So this study was just not powered or designed to look at things like that.
0: Okay, so where do we go from here? Does this drug need a clinical trial, a randomized control trial? Now I, you know, one of the things we talk about, especially with uh, dabigatran is that uh, I think the half-life is somewhere around 17 hours. And so, you know, we don't usually dialyze these patients because by the time we get all the machinery ready and everything, the drug's basically out of people's system. But this is like a minute's... We're talking about within minutes. So could you justify not having a randomized trial for these patients?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think to your first point, what's really promising about this kind of mechanism for reversing a DOAC is that it does work in minutes. And if you're, th- if you're thinking about a critical bleeding event, setting someone up for dialysis and dialyzing out the drug is probably um, a way of removing the agent well after the damage is done. So really it's just something that's not very effective for what we're talking about. Maybe an effective way for treating something like an overdose, but not effective for treating a critical bleeding event. Um, So this mechanism does seem very promising. Uh, The question is, who is the targeted population you're going to use it on? And would you need to do a randomized trial in order to see who is effective for Something the authors mentioned, and I think something that I personally believe, is that when you have an agent which is this convincing for reversing hemostasis abnormalities in people who have critical events like intracranial bleeding, I don't know if it's ethical actually at this point to do a trial. I'm sure that's something that people are going to debate and Certainly, there's examples of drugs like this which people think are convincingly effective and then a trial shows them not to be. But again, if you were that patient or if this was your patient with a critical bleed, I think if there was this very specific reversal agent, it'd be hard not to offer it to them.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, definitely ethically tricky. Certainly, if there is a patient population in whom you might think that there's enough equipoise, like the urgent surgery kind of population, as opposed to where you know intracranial bleed maybe. You don't have that same degree of equipoise. But certainly for safety monitoring, there would need to be a robust mechanism. Absolutely. So
1: as I said, this is a preliminary analysis of what's supposed to be a larger ongoing study. There's a lot of other phase one type studies just in this issue in just in the last couple of weeks. The Lancet also published a study using this exact agent. But in this time, in, in, in that study was on healthy volunteers Who were given dabigatran and then given this agent as a reversal. So there are those studies occurring and again nothing was flagged on the safety profile but certainly this would have to be used in much larger numbers to start to get a sense of
0: potential adverse effects. Okay so let's come back to my first question. Who uses dabigatran anymore? Obviously that's a little facetious but uh, this is obviously a calculated move by a drug company perhaps seeking to reclaim some market share.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is probably every manufacturer of a DOAC is pouring huge amounts of money into trying to find a specific reversal agent right now. Why did the reversal agent for dabigatran enter the market first, or it hasn't even entered the market? Why is this the first high-profile study to actively use it as a reversal agent in a bleeding patient? Well, Dubikisham was the first. It's older, right? That's exactly right. So it was the first drug that was on the market. And so the manufacturers have had a longer period of time to develop a reversal agent. I suspect that there's going to be reversal agents coming onto the market or being published or or studies publishing uh, promising results for reversal agents for the other DOACs as well. But it does now raise the intriguing question of what to do clinically if uh, this drug becomes available and you have the choice of which DOAC to put a patient on. Certainly on the prevention and treatment side, it seems like the evidence has shifted towards other DOAX and not dabigatran. But now that there is a specific reversal agent, I wonder if physicians, again, will be tempted to use dabigatran because
0: of the worry of the critical bleed. So we'll see what happens, I guess. We'll see if it ever makes it to the market and we have to actually make that decision or if in the time between now and approval, the other doAX that the evidence seems to favor... Uh, develop their own antidotes in the interim. Exactly. It'll be an interesting few months. Okay. So this was a nice follow-up on our conversation about oral anticoagulants last week. When And when I say our conversation, I really mean my <laughs> conversation with myself. That's right. Your favorite kind of conversation. <laughs> uh, so thanks for that. That was great. So do you want to summarize what
1: the main finding was? Sure. So to summarize, this study provides evidence that edirocizumab is an effective way of reversing hemostatic abnormalities in patients taking dabigatran. It's the first agent on the market specifically targeted at a DOAC. It remains to be seen how quickly it will enter the market or whether other agents will be developed for the other DOACs.
0: Okay, thanks Fahad. Let's change gears. So I wanted to talk about a study that showed an association between digoxin use and mortality in a post-hoc analysis of a large randomized control trial published uh, recently in The Lancet.
1: Okay, so tell me about the trial that you were looking at.
0: Yeah, so this is a post-hoc analysis of the ROCKET-AF trial. So ROCKET-AF, actually speaking of DOACS, was the phase 3 randomized control trial of rivaroxaban versus warfarin for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation. Very large study, 14,000 patients, and these investigators did a post-hoc analysis of that data looking at digoxin exposure, and assessing for mortality as an outcome. Okay,
1: so Rocket 8F was not developed to look at digoxin. Why did they develop this question?
0: Yeah, I think these investigators developed this important question because digoxin is currently recommended by cardiology guidelines for heart rate control in patients with reduced ejection fraction, left ventricular ejection fraction, or heart failure. We also use digoxin in heart failure to prevent readmissions to hospital and heart failure exacerbations. But most of that evidence is from a single large randomized control trial of patients with heart failure And the evidence for the use of digoxin in patients with atrial fibrillation itself is quite scarce. So the authors did a systematic review and found no large clinical trials assessing cardiovascular outcomes or mortality in patients with atrial fibrillation on digoxin, and yet it's used fairly commonly. So this was the largest analysis to date of digoxin use and outcomes in atrial fibrillation, Taking high quality data that was gathered for another randomized control trial and using it observationally. So, when you say digoxin is commonly used, how commonly used was it in this study? Yeah, so in this study, almost forty percent of patients. I think it was thirty-seven percent of patients. So, five about five thousand of the fourteen thousand patients were on digoxin. That's actually surprisingly high. I had no idea. Yeah. So. What did they do? So they they recognized that on their case report forms for the study, digoxin was captured as a concomitant drug. And they also recognized that they had a lot of relevant clinical variables. So they captured information about heart failure and patient's ejection fraction. They followed these patients regularly over two to three years. And so uh, they had updated whether patients were still on digoxin. They had excellent capture of patient outcomes. And so it lent itself nicely to an observational study. So in this study, were the patients who were taking digoxin different than the ones who weren't? Right. So why don't we start with talking about who were the patients overall? So uh, they were an average of 73 years old, 40% were women, 80% were white. Their average CHAD score was three. So these were patients at high uh, risk of having a stroke. Now, there were some important differences in the digoxin group and the non-digoxin group. So patients with digoxin were more likely to have heart failure, diabetes. They were more likely to have persistent atrial fibrillation rather than paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And they were more likely to have a higher baseline heart rate than the other group. So interestingly, actually, you could think about uh, the overall study population almost as two different phenotypes. The patients who were not on digoxin had a higher rate of previous stroke. So they got their CHAD score points from stroke and age, perhaps, whereas the digoxin group got their uh, CHAD score points from the heart failure kind of point of view. So certainly they were two different cohorts of patients. And so obviously you're, I guess, implying an important question, which is can we even compare these groups?
1: Yeah, and I think it's raising the point that for non-cardiologists digoxin would probably not be a first-line agent for rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation. Most people would use either a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker. And so the people who are on digoxin are in a way systematically different or potentially sicker because they're being followed by cardiologists instead of general internists or primary care physicians.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important point. I uh- two s- simple responses to that. One is that I kind of wonder if some of that is generational. I agree with you that in our practice, that's probably not the case. There was perhaps a time when digoxin was more frequently used uh, for heart rate control by uh, general practitioners or general internists. Um, certainly that wasn't assessed in this study. What uh, what they did do in this study, and I agree with you, is you know there's a chance that digoxin is just a signal of baseline worse heart disease and therefore higher likelihood of having mortality. And I think that's the fundamental challenge with this study. In order to try and overcome that uh, indication bias, as it were, in order to try and overcome that bias, uh, the authors did a couple of things. So one, they did adjusting for covariates in, as part of their regression analysis and create an an adjusted model. The second thing that they did was propensity matching, where they looked at all of the variables that could have predicted uh, the use of digoxin and then matched patients within the cohort uh, to try and find a a decent comparator group. They were able to do this, uh, and we'll talk about their findings, which were robust across all of the different adjustments and stayed the same, uh, roughly the same, despite all the adjustments. So certainly it points to the fact that there is a signal here, but that will always be a flaw of this observational design. Okay, so what was the major finding? Yeah, so the major finding is that patients on digoxin had increased all-cause mortality at five and a half events per 100 patient years, as opposed to four and a half events per patient years. So that's a number needed to harm of 100 patients over one year time. Uh, so that's a pretty important finding, arguably, that you know if you have 5,000 patients on Uh, digoxin, one in a hundred of them are likely to die each year as a result of the digoxin use. They also found no difference in hospital admission rates, which was interesting because one of the reasons for using digoxin is supposedly reduced admissions in heart failure patients. And then importantly, they also found that there were no treatment differences or interaction, statistical interactions between digoxin and the warfarin rivaroxaban randomization. So Really, this is a hypothesis-generating study. I think it raises an important point, though. This is a common medication, uh, and so these authors are sounding a cautionary note that you know perhaps we should be less easy to put someone on digoxin, and perhaps this lends itself now to a large randomized control trial. Sure, sure.
1: So I guess the takeaway for the newer generation of physicians is we can go from not using digoxin to not using digoxin.
0: All right, so aren't you a nihilist of this (laughs) study? (laughs) Or just patting yourself on the back. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, But I think, tell that to the 40% of people in this study who are on digoxin. Sure,
1: yeah. So all jokes aside, clearly it's still a widely used medication. We do see it
0: all the time, and uh, this is very interesting. So what's your takeaway? So the major takeaway point from this study is that an observational study of high-quality data in... 14,000 patients showed an association between digoxin use and mortality, even after adjustment and propensity matching, suggesting that maybe we should be more cautious about the use of digoxin, and I think highlighting a real opportunity for future research. Okay. Thanks, Amal. Let's go to our Good Stuff segment. Fahad, what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week?
1: So this week was a very good week for Canadian studies on the always challenging but highly relevant area of thrombosis prevention. The, the trial that I mentioned, the senior author of that trial was Jeff Weitz from McMaster University. And in this upcoming issue of the New England Journal, there's actually two other Canadian studies looking at thrombosis outcomes. There's a new study by Jim Duketis, also at McMaster, that tells us that the labor and resource intensive process of bridging patients with atrial fibrillation prior to surgery is probably not required for the majority of patients, a very important finding. Uh, There's a second study by Mark Carrier at the University of Ottawa that tells us that For all those patients that we see with unprovoked clots, unprovoked DVTs or PEs, aside from doing just age-appropriate malignancy screening, we probably don't need to do much else. So they specifically looked at whether there was added value of doing CT scans of the abdomen or pelvis or lung looking for malignancies, and they found no benefit. So two other important studies on uh, thrombosis and prevention, a really good week for Canadian research.
0: Yeah, so I'm really glad you brought that up, because in all honesty, if we were continuing to record, I'm sure we would have done entire episodes on those papers. So those are the headlines, and uh, we leave it to you in your summer reading uh, to peruse those at your own leisure. So My Good Stuff uh, is actually a beautiful slide deck about opioid use that uh, was put online by the Social Media and Critical Care Conference. And I guess in general, this is a plug for the SMAC US uh, website, which has tons of great educational materials. They've put up all their lectures and slides. And it's really well done. So this is a beautiful slide deck talking about the use of opioids and the rise of the opioid endemic uh, in specifically the United States, but certainly with relevance across North America and beyond. So we'll put a link to it. I really encourage you to have a look at their slides, which are graphically quite wonderful. A couple of things stuck out to me. The first was the statistic that opioids are responsible for one in eight deaths in Americans aged 25 to 34, and that the vast majority of those are unintentional. Wow, that is an incredible statistic. Perhaps an even more staggering statistic was they compared the use of opioids, and specifically morphine, in milligrams per person in 2010 and so they compared Japan and so in Japan there is roughly 26 milligrams of morphine prescribed per person whereas in the United States there were 660 milligrams of morphine prescribed per person so a staggering difference. 30 times difference that is unbelievable and you know that tells you about the average I wonder what it would be among extreme users in the United States. Absolutely so The other thing that I really liked about this for the clinician is it offers some really helpful language about how to talk to patients, which I have used in my practice just in the last week. One of the phrases that they suggest is, my job is to manage your pain at the same time that I manage the potential for some pain medications to harm you. And another phrase that I found really helpful is, I know you are in pain and I want to improve your pain. But I believe that opioids are not only the wrong treatment for your pain, but that opioids are the cause of your pain. I think pain medications are harming you, and if you could stop taking them, your pain and your life would improve. Can I offer you resources that will help you stop taking pain medications? So I think some really helpful, practical language. Absolutely. So that's my good stuff. Have a look at our website for that link. Great for use in clinical care and teaching. Okay. Thanks, Amal. Okay, thanks for having a pleasure to do this and I will see you on the other side of hopefully what is a, a sunny and balmy summer. Have a great summer and great to be with you on this last episode.